Hi, and welcome to another episode of Conversations with Des. Today, I have the honor and privilege of having a guest from uh, IBM. Uh, my guest today is Marcel Mitran. Uh, Marcel, welcome to the show. Hey, thanks for having me, uh, Des. Thanks for staying up. Now, I understand it's probably about 10 or 11 o'clock at your end in uh, sunny old uh, Toronto, so I appreciate you uh, uh, burning the candle at both ends. Uh, in my case, it's a beautiful sunny morning at about 11 o'clock, and I'm staring at a lovely cloudy sky out my window. So uh, thanks for staying up late. Really appreciate it. Oh, I'm excited to be here, man. This is going to be fun. It is indeed. So just to quickly introduce you, and then um, I'm going to get you to, uh, to to probably do a far better job yourself. But uh, um, Marcel, you're the um, CTO of IBM Linux One. You're a distinguished engineer at IBM Systems. And I was looking at your uh, background just to get some insight into you personally. Uh, uh, and uh, it looks to me that you spent about the last 20 years developing both hardware and software technologies um, specifically to solve problems around sort of modern enterprise challenges. But uh, correct me if I'm wrong, but I think you've spent the last 16 of those years at IBM in various roles culminating in your current role as CTO for Linux One. Is that right? Yeah, absolutely. Yes. I've been uh, with IBM for 16 years, started off as an entry-level uh, compiler developer and just kept getting more and more excited about the stack and, and uh, you know, learning more and having more influence over a broader part of the stack and that somehow turned into a, a, a role as CTO for for this exciting uh, Linux platform. And I understand uh, today you've got some uh, pretty exciting news to share as far as uh, big announcements go. Um, so I'm very keen to lead into that. Uh, we've seen a number of things uh, come out the last few days around the press and the media, um, but perhaps I could just uh, throw to you to maybe just uh, share this uh, exciting announcement and we can kind of uh, lead into a few questions around it. Sure, yeah. We, I mean, we were at uh, Open Source Summit and uh, announced the availability of the uh, Linux One Emperor 2, um, which is the second generation of our, of our um, enterprise Linux uh, server systems. I mean, these are, these are just amazing systems that are really designed to meet the needs of the modern enterprise uh, and, you know, bring to bear all the, the, the exciting capabilities of the Linux ecosystem. It's an interesting shift to, um, you know, when, when people think about IBM and they think about sort of the, the traditional sort of big iron that IBM's in, been involved in for, you know, well, essentially six decades now since the, the very first big, big iron uh, machine that was being built. But the last, I guess, 40 to 50 years of mainframe and particularly the, the current edition of sort of the CMOS-based platforms, um, I often have people sort of look at me and, and, and sort of sit up and think, Linux, open source, IBM, mm -hmm. really? Um, but this is a fairly natural uh, thing in my mind, the, the transition is sort of for, for, you know, if we shake off the, the legacy view that uh, mainframe is an old platform. I, I remember having a conversation with Steve Dickens um, uh, inside the IBM uh, team, and he had this great uh, line that uh, I'm going to share here. He's, he commented that around about 1967, the um, Porsche 911 was released as a car. Uh, around the same time as the, the sort of the latest edition of sort of the mainframe architecture in, in many ways. And he said, you know, when people think about the, the new Porsche 911 2017 edition, they don't tend to look at it and expect that it's going to have the 1967 brake systems and steering <laughs> column, right? Uh, and yet for some people, you know, they look at it and think that um, IBM's mainframe platform hasn't really shifted in, in that many years. But that, that's very much not the case at all, is it? No, I mean, I mean, this, this platform has been evolving at, a, at an incredible pace, keeping up with the needs of you know modern business and modern modern computing and modern enterprise. 
Um, you know, we've got industry-leading Java on the platform. We run a, a huge open-source ecosystem, everything Docker, Mongo. Um, you'd be amazed at, you know, just how how rich the the platform is and, and how capable it is and, and how much it's evolved over those 60-odd years. Um, and Linux, I mean, we've had Linux on this platform for, you know, over 16 years now. We were there in the early days, um, you know, in the late 90s with Linux on on the mainframe. So with Linux One, what, you know, what we really did was we, we you know, we, we took it to the next level and, and, and decided to go full out and, and build Linux-only systems to meet the needs of, you know, the modern, uh, our modern enterprise and customers who, who have a need for, you know, for Linux, but, but Linux with high availability, high security, scalability, you know, and resilience. So, um, you know, so, so yeah, the, you're right. You know, this is a very modern, very capable, uh, a very, uh, a very exciting system for, for Linux. You know, when we think about the history of, of Linux, just as a side, um, you know, I think it was about 1991, uh, originally, the very first sort of announcement came out uh, with regard to Linux as a thing. I remembered, and and you know there was early editions of all kinds of things. There was one called Yagdrazzle that I personally I think was my very first Linux uh, platform that actually booted. Uh, but when we think about the that timeline, you know, if it was roughly let's say what's that 1991, 26 years, 26 years ago, Linux became mm-hmm. a thing. Um, you know, as you just said, I mean, for the better part of well, let's say 16 years on your platform, uh, you know that. For the bulk of that that modern duration of, of the life of the Linux kernel and the ecosystem around it, it's been native on the mainframe platform. And and you know when I think people think about mainframe, they often sort of think about old 3270 terminals and these clanky old uh, operating systems. But um, you know Linux effectively powers everything these days. <laughs> it's in my damn phones. It's in our cars. It's it's the cloud. Um, so it's interesting that you know I think there's a lot of uh, people who are surprised when they hear this, and yet. To me, I sort of think, well, you know, it shouldn't be a surprise that Linux made its way onto the mainframe and that it made its way there as a native client as opposed to just something sitting in a virtual machine. Um, and it seems to me that it's a natural progression that it scales well. I mean, we see it scaling well in the cloud. We see it scaling well on mobility devices. Given that the, 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 the modern mainframe is, is a, a, a ridiculously powerful workhorse, uh, it seemed a natural transition for Linux to be there. Um, if, I would love to delve just quickly into the when we think about the, yeah. the design of the system, when we think about the heritage of sort of you know what's what we've seen over the last fifty years. When we think about the current edition of the Z fourteen with you know security baked into the DNA of the hardware and and security baked into the DNA of, of, of the, the latest edition of Linux One, um, are there any key insights that you could sort of share around uh, some of the influence that, that sort of came into the modern enterprise platform? Uh, that you sort of gleaned from the last 50 years? You know, what sort of things have you been able to leverage and, and learn from over the last sort of five-odd decades of IBM's hardware platform and operating system design that have made their way into Linux One? Oh, there's there's so much. I mean, the, I mean to start off, I mean, the system from a security perspective, you know, has has uh, hardware security modules, HSMs, built into it and integrated that are, you know, FIPS 140-2 level 4, um, and that, you know, that's a, you know, that's the, the, the highest certified uh, HSM you can get in the industry. And, and, and that's a design point, you know, that, that's inherited from that, you know, the need in that legacy enterprise space where, you know, you're, 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 you've got data that, that's powering the modern economy and that, you know, obviously is incredibly sensitive. So 
so you have to you know operate at that level of security um, you know those so those you know those HSMs are, are probably you know one one example um, the the systems are actually um, you know what one of the other key sort of uh, design points that 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 you have to think about when you talk about enterprise computing and enterprise data serving is is they're they're inherently scale up in that you know when you're when you're serving data that that runs a you know a, a large enterprise that's that's uh, you know that that can never go down you have to be able to non-disruptively grow and and manage that data serving environment and so so these boxes are designed for scale up they're designed to to grow vertically and do so in a in a you know a completely non-intrusive way so you can you can add resources to these these ver the, these linux environments you can add cpu memory io you know and and you can do that without ever having to bring the system down and, and in a similar fashion you can add linux environments to it um, non-disruptively as your need for more transaction processing application serving grows and so you get this really unique sort of topology where you can grow uh, your data serving environment vertically or, or scaling by scaling it up, and you can grow your your application serving environment um, horizontally by scaling it out. And you can do this all in the context of a single system where you have 85 different hypervisors running, um, and each with you know its own its own set of Linux environments and and all of these hypervisors you can you can manage the resources underneath them uh, transparently and you can build this really efficient communication channel between the different environments because you know when you're on you're on a single footprint um, a socket or a TCP IP stack is essentially a memory copy under the covers so you you have this wonderfully elastic system that can that can do some amazing things and, and solve some problems that you just can't solve elsewhere with other, you know, with other platforms. It's interesting that when, you know, uh, I'm going to be upfront and honest here, you know, people are going to think that I'm old, but, you know, at the age of 14, I used to escape from school early. I used to forge my mum's signature, which I've disclosed to her many times now. <laughs> and, you know, my, de my, my, my school teachers probably thought I had the biggest dental issue and psychological issue you could ever imagine because I had to make up these excuses, you know, Des has got to go to the dentist or Des has got to go to a, an analyst. But I used to sign myself out at school and dash down to a company called Datacom uh, who had a data centre at the end of the road and I would work as a mainframe operator putting paper in, in 132 column printers and tapes and tape drives and run batch jobs and you know a lot of a lot of what you're talking about now I mean some of that stuff was there in the early days and and has been part of the design pattern or the design principles in the mainframe from the early early days which is a you know I think in many ways when we look at cloud and we look at a lot of what we're doing with cloud it's high performance computing and mainframe uh, done in a different way but we've circled back now I think in many ways that People are now saying, well, it's great that we can do it by taking a lot of x86 boxes and gluing them together. But, um, hey, look, there's a, there's a platform that's been around for a long time that's, that's just as modern, if not more. Um, and it's all in one platform. And as you said, you know, they scale out. I mean, there's you know, some key challenges around sorts of things that enterprise organizations are, are of any form, whether it's, you know, um, specific verticals like health and hospitals and aged care or, or education and, and children through to banking, wealth management and finance and everything in between where security and speed and scalability and other key things uh, are not just niceties. I mean, they're, they're necessities, aren't they? They're, these are things you have to assume are there by default. You can't really bake them in afterwards, can you? They're not really an afterthought. No, they, 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 you can't afford to 
to, to lose your banking information, you know, for, for any period of time, right? You as a banking as a as a banking customer expect to be able to get to your bank's your bank account any time of day. And and what's more important is if you if you update that, you know, the information in your bank account, you expect that to happen immediately. You know, you don't expect eventual uh, eventual consistency. <laughs> you, you need immediate consistency, right? And that that's a that's a that's a hard problem to solve when you start to think about, um, you know, distributed computing and some of the challenges of, of cohesive data management and, and partition data systems. So, yeah, I mean, I mean, these systems are, you know, their heritage, um, their heritage is is very real, and it, it was the way they've been built and designed and engineered over sixty years. You know, there's some reality and and some very strong business needs that they they've been built to meet and and have evolved to meet over the years so yeah it is a different flavor of of uh, computing capability and i think there's a you know there's a wake-up call in many ways for a lot of um of the you know we, we call them cloud natives in many ways but you know we see the facebooks and the ubers of the world come along and and I, you know, I sort of refer to them, it's actually a phrase that came out of IBM, I believe, uh, I remember reading a while back. But this idea of a cloud native, uh, an organization who uh, is young enough to not have had any experience other than cloud platforms and mobility platforms. And, and, and in many ways, they're relearning the things or the lessons that, um, that the likes of, of long-term clients of IBM and others have already known. When you look at, you know, it's exciting to think about booking a car to come around the corner, pick you up via a mobile phone app. But as you said, you know, when you think about some of the, think I always look at it from the point of view of humanities. I was I was lucky enough to be at the World of Watson event recently uh, in Las Vegas, and even more recently the IBM Interconnect event. And Ginny Rometty uh, does these great uh, talks for roughly two hours, which you know is a long time to hold people's attention. But she she just blows me away. And each time I came away from this thing thinking. This person just spent two hours keeping me enthralled and engaged and didn't once talk about technology, talked about the humanities and all the <laughs> things that underpin it. And it always kind of, you know, I walk away each time thinking, God, I just keep remembering this. And I looked, before we caught up today, I looked at some of the things that, you know, what, what happens to me every day? What do, I, what do I build my life around? And I realized that there's some key things that just have to be stable, that, that the platforms that you're building here with, were not just Linux on, but the IBM platform in general. Um, that you know make my life possible, whether it's banking or wealth management or insurance or airlines and booking flights, um, whether it's my state government around me or my federal government protecting the country or just general retail and manufacturing. Um, you know, uh, one of our kids had a health challenge the other day, nothing major, but again, we rocked up to a hospital and things just worked. Uh, whether it's protecting the borders of the country, you know, there's all kinds of interesting things happening around the planet now. And Australia is one of the biggest islands on the planet. So, you know, we've got a key challenge here with, as you do in the US and, uh, and, and, uh, and Canada with um, your borders. So there's defense, uh, there's transport, logistics and telecommunications. And I started this list thinking, these are really big things that we wake up every day. We jump out of bed and we assume that are good. Uh, and, and many people have tried to put them into, uh, I guess, you know, cloud-based tools in many ways, and, and they haven't always worked well. Uh, I can't always get my Skype call to work, but I can definitely pick up my landline and make a phone call. And I'm sure a lot of these little issues will be ironed out, but I think many people forget that under, under the hood, under the covers, if you like, when you open the kimono, uh, there's some really big iron driving some of these key things around banking, wealth management, finance, aviation, airlines, etc., um, in fact, I actually went and did some homework on it just to, to go on that point. 
It turns out I looked at who still uses mainframes and who's using some of the platforms you're building. And here's a bit of a brain dump quickly. It turns out 70% of enterprise data still sits on your platforms and mainframes, and, and I'm sure invariably now on the Linux One platform. 71% uh, of the Fortune 500s in the US, uh, their core system's still in mainframe. 92 out of the top 100 banks in the world still run their banking systems in mainframe. 23 out of the 25 top retailers in the world use your platforms. 10 out of 10 of the top insurers on the planet run their entire cloud services on mainframe, and I'm sure on Linux One. Uh, and two last quick ones. Uh, it turned out the two, top 225 state and local governments in the world rely on mainframe platforms, and effectively all major nations on the planet run their defense systems still on mainframe. So, you know, when I look at that, it's like, wow, I bet if I stood up in a boardroom somewhere and said that to the average company, they would roll their eyes back going, well, you know what? You're right, we forgot this thing. Um, when we think about all of those platforms, I'd love to jump into a couple of key things around security, speed, and scalability in particular, because I think these are three standout areas that would be of interest that you've got some key insights into. When we think about security and, and, and how Linux One and the mainframe platform from IBM play into this, um, I think it's fair to say that you know, two or three of the key challenges are things like insider threats, just keeping your general data and the keys that protect that data safe, avoiding data loss. We hear a lot about hacking, but invariably, I think a lot of the data breaches we're seeing now are not necessarily somebody hacking a system, but a system's design just being uh, poorly thought out and, and essentially the, the back door's left open and, and stuff just leaks. Um, I'd love to get some insight into what you've done around the design and, and architecture and some of the, the key strengths of Linux One, Emperor V2, uh, specifically in this space of security and, and some of those key challenges, if you could. Yeah, I, I mean, one of the key features in the Emperor 2 that we announced was something called secure service containers. And, and what those are are essentially a, a pervasively encrypted uh, environment for running uh, Docker workloads, of all things. So um, what happens is the workloads are, you know, completely encrypted. They're tamper-resistant, both at install and runtime. Um, the, the, they lock out privileged users to protect against, you know, that, that insider threat. Um, and so they, they really do offer, um, you know, a, a very, uh, secure and, and confidential cloud computing environment. And, and, you know, we've been, we've actually had this technology now for, for a while. Um, we we announced it in Emperor 2 because we're, we're making it more generally available for others to use, but, but, um, you know, for over a year now, we've had um, the IBM blockchain solution in, in the IBM cloud running uh, on top of the, inside these secure service containers, right? And you can envision or, or imagine why, you know, a blockchain, you know, blockchain technology would be a, you know, would really benefit from that, that type of security and protection and privacy. Um, and, and, you know, that's that's really made a huge difference in the success we've had with that, that blockchain offering. The fact that we could offer that differentiated confidential computing environment um, really has, you know, has been a, a key part of the success and, and the, 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 our ability to, to really, you know, get out there and, and, and succeed with our blockchain technology. I think a lot of companies are struggling to come to grips with just the concepts around things like distributed ledgers and, and what blockchain means. And we get very distracted with sort of what Bitcoin and cyber currencies are all about. And I often, when I talk about um, blockchain, I often take the Bitcoin concept out and just say, think about it as a secure token. 
Um, you know, we buy tickets online and we get QR codes sent to our phone via SMS and we scan that to get into the into the show. Or we buy an airline ticket and we get a, a boarding pass and it's got a QR code. And I often look and say, well, that's a that's a that's a secure digital token and it's you know often a one time use or whatever the case may be. And and then I link them back to blockchain and what it actually means. And um, the first challenge that comes up, people say, well, where are we going to get this? You know. And and that's when I started looking at well, you know, there's there's companies that already do this. It's part of their platform, and I think it's fair to say that, as you've just said, that when we when we look at what you're doing around not just the hardware stack with the Z14 that's just come out and Linux uh, Linux uh, Emperor two, but you're actually baking in this capability into the platform so that by default, by rolling this up, this is almost a capability that we can assume is there from from day one. One of the things that I was really interested in reading around. Um, when the, the sort of Emperor 2 came out, having been a developer for, for too long and, and then moving out of coding and just moving into business challenges, I'm always reminded by the, the, the challenge of getting code to work at speed. And uh, I remember reading that the, the latest uh, uh, processor that's inside the, um, the Z14 runs at like 5.2 gigahertz. And, you know, it struck me, this is like twice the speed of a machine that I'm used to, it runs about 2.4 to 2.6 gigahertz on x86, and and I'm not going to poo-poo the x86 as a great platform, um, but it's just that when you think about the clock speed and and caching and some of the challenges around how to get your code to behave well in that space, and I and I also there were two other things I was going to call out. I, I remember seeing there was like 640 dedicated I/O processes. I'd love you to give us some insight on in what that actually means, and then the thing that really blew my mind was 32 terabytes of RAM. And, you know, I looked at it for a second and thought, oh, is that a typo? And then it's like, no, it's actually 32 terabytes of RAM. When we think about the platform itself underpinning this from the hardware and, and what you've had to deal with with re-engineering and the, the whole redesign of what's become Emperor 2 from Linux 1, I'd love to get some insight on what it actually means to deal with a 5.2 gigahertz CPU with 640 I.O. processes and specifically what those I.O. processes do and, and dealing with the challenge of coping with 32 terabytes of memory which which you know is is orders of magnitude beyond some of the other platforms that that are trying to scale linux to what what does it even look like around that whole scale size challenge yeah, well i mean the, the the design point here is is really around a scalable secure data serving environment and and so a lot of that you know that engineering that you're mentioning here was is really attuned to enabling that that scalable data serving solution, right? Having the, the 640 power cores that do nothing but I.O. means that, you know, your general purpose processors don't have to deal with I.O. It, it, it can be completely offloaded to these special purpose uh, accelerators with, that do nothing but I.O. And, and that way you can have a consistent, high performance, high throughput, high bandwidth um, I/O capability, right? Which is which is really really important when you're trying to serve data, uh, uh, you know, to uh, to serve data very effectively, efficiently, and in a very predictable manner. Um, the the similarly, when you look at the 32 terabytes of, of real memory, right? What we're what we're we're dealing with here is the reality of you know keeping data in memory so that we can get to it fast. Um, what we're dealing with is the ability to um, to swap workload in and out very quickly in a highly virtualized environment, um, and then of course the the thread speed is is incredibly important when you think about any type of locking scenario where you know the the, the faster you can get in and out of locks, 
the, the less likely you are to see those locks contended. And so for, for, for scalable data serving environments, that single, single thread performance, uh, you know, speed is, is just incredibly important to be able to provide truly scalable, um, truly scalable workload. I mean, another, another, key point to take away from the, the system design is that it also has some of the largest caches in the industry. In fact, you know, the, 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 the fourth level cache is 670 megs. It, it's just, there's just nothing like that in the industry elsewhere. So it is, it is really all about, you know, that having a, a design point that's, that's really amenable to scalable, high performance data serving. Yeah. I think, you know, when we, it, it, each of those things we could have a whole hour discussion on our own right but um i think this is where the the you know people say legacy with a negative connotation but i never allow that to happen i mean legacy is a very positive thing in my mind but these are not engineering challenges that everybody's capable of dealing with uh in my mind and, and when we think about that whole speed and, and scalability um organizations sitting in their boardrooms with whiteboard markers trying to perform jedi mind tricks around their design patterns fall over constantly when they try to scale from sort of 1 to 2 to 16 to 32 to 100 to 200 to 1,000 instances of anything. And and yet, you know, what I'm hearing here is this is something you take for granted. And I think often it's one of the world's best-kept secrets that by default a platform like this comes with this capability and it's an assumed that you can scale to that size. I'd love to just quickly delve into the inside of the, uh, the I.O. processor component. I mean, there's 640 dedicated I.O. processors. I, I suspect that most people listening have, haven't really understood what an I.O. processor means on a platform like this. Can you share some insight into what it actually means to even have that baked into the platform? Um, it, it, it means that your, your general purpose processors can focus on doing general purpose work and they can they can offload any I/O processing to these these dedicated processors, and the and the I/O can then perform in parallel. It can it can be driven, it can it can happen without having to disrupt the general purpose work. Um, right. And so you can you can you can get in and out of, of your disks and 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 without having to disrupt you know the the actual workload. Um, yeah. And and it's you know it's. When we think about uh, you know, kids getting into develop design and, and coding these days, it's it's something that they don't always fully appreciate that when they write code, um, you know, as you said before, like you know, blocking and blocked I/O and, and so forth, you know, your code only runs fast if it can get in and out of the the processor and in and out of memory and, and actually execute and perform instructions. And so when you think about an architecture where that's got dedicated I/O processes, hardware that's dedicated making sure that data gets from one point to another quickly. It completely changes the game in my mind because you know, every every microsecond, every millisecond that your code is sitting there waiting to do something or waiting for data to get in and out of the CPU, it's basically doing nothing but waiting. And it's that waiting that kills us, right? It's that little spinning dial on screen. Um, this, the other interesting thing that I, I remember reading an article a while back, and I forget whose name it was, but um, one of the primary maintainers of Linux kernel, it wasn't Linus, um, but it was somebody else, uh, commented that when they get code back from IBM, it's invariably the case that the code's better. They haven't just ported it to a new platform. They've actually improved it. And one of the comments they made was that the speed and the scale at which IBM's platforms move 
mean that you have to kind of refactor the code in many ways to get it to, to get that performance. Uh, and when you hand the code back and you check it in and it gets reviewed for, for inclusion for the next version of a kernel build, um, that invariably this person said, and it was, just, it was like the second or third most important maintainer on the planet, so I should be able to remember their name, but I apologize, I can't. But the, their comment was that invariably when code comes back from IBM, it's better. And it really struck me that, um, again, this is another sort of takeaway that people don't often realize that you're not just porting the likes of, of the Linux kernel and creating the Linux one platform, but you're adding significant value to that in a design and engineering point of view, right? Oh yeah, absolutely. It's 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 that it's adding scalability, but it's also adding uh, first failure data capture, for instance, because we have this high availability design point, right? So, so it's certainly you know there's certainly a lot that we do to to not just you know not just port, but to enhance and and provide and bring a lot of these sort of design characteristics to that Linux environment. Absolutely. And I, I, um, I, I, I can imagine the, the, you know, the sitting in the room looking at the code coming back and just expecting to be ported all of a sudden. You sit there and go, oh, wow, this is a whole piece of refactored code. What happened here? Uh, it must be an interesting experience for them to get it back and actually get it in a good form because I, I know from having been involved in various port processes, uh, particularly uh, BSD 4.4 Tahoe moving to another platform uh, inside uh, uh, Hewlett & Packard and Prime back in the day, which ages me. Um, our challenge was to just port the OS and get it working, and we didn't have the ability to, to play with performance tuning. Um, it must be nice to be able to have a design team have this ability to actually have that capability to, 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 to work on performance and scale and actually make it work and then, and then hand it back. That's probably pretty rewarding. Um, I'd love to get into the detail of um, where encryption and security uh, fits in here. We, Every, you know, I was doing some math on this the other day, and I've got some research I do myself in this space around data breaches and some of those incidents. And you know, there's an average of 1,400 data breach incidences a day. Now, they're not all the the, the Equifaxes and the, the Yahoos and the, the LinkedIns, but um, and I'm not picking on them for any reason. They're just some big ones. But we're not talking about hundreds of millions or dozens. I mean, a lot of the 1,400 daily incidences of data breaches are hundreds, if not thousands, of, of records. But they're invariably getting more and more critical. They're not just... Um, you know, geeks talking on a on a on a web forum anymore. They're they're um, you know, general practitioners. Yesterday, there's one where a, uh, a medical practitioner had their website broken, and they for some reason decided to keep the database of their clients on their web-faced platform. And you know, in my personal life, my son had an account on a platform called Edmodo, uh, which is kind of like a Facebook for kids in the education space. And something like 79 million accounts got breached. So. It wasn't just a um, it wasn't just usernames and passwords. It was the entire dump. So every comment that my then twelve year old son had made uh, in this platform, and and you know, he asked me a specific question. You know, he said, "Dad, have they read everything?" And what he was concerned with is he'd, he'd made these really cute comments backwards and forwards with a, a friend who was a girl in the class, and he was worried that people were going to see it and tease him. Um, my wife had her data breached in um, an incident here where a blood donation website. Uh, that's run where you can register and, and, and go to a hospital and contribute blood to various things. They ask you a whole bunch of very personal questions around you know, sexual history and preference and blood type and other things like that. And it was breached in totality as well. And so, you know, I've personally been touched by this stuff. I've been in a data breach. I've been in every modern data breach of, you know, my LinkedIn account's been broken three times. My Not just hacked, but my data's been breached three times. You know, and it's like Xbox and you could list these things off. So, you know, Yahoo and Twitter and PayPal and eBay and um, uh, the list goes on. There, I personally had my data breached. Um, 
I'd love to learn a bit more about the thinking that went into um, sitting back and saying, well, we're going to put data in containers, so we're going to do it in a cloud format. Where do we, where do we start as far as a clean piece of paper goes and how do, we, how do you design that architecturally into the likes of secure containers and the platform itself and pre-stored keys and protect that? Uh, can you share some insight into that sort of approach, how you, how you approach that from a design point of view, how the developers approach the whole concept of building security into the baking into the DNA? Sure. Uh, I, I, I mean, for us, you know, it was key to leverage the, you know, the the hypervisor technology that we have. You know, we have this really unique nested hypervisor technology that that allows us to to put eighty five different hypervisor instances on a single box, and those those are basically you know LPARs, and then of course each of those hypervisors then can. And you know can can run um, you know a, 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 a skew of Linux guests, and so we had a, a really good sort of starting point with that capability, right? Where because you now have this concept of of hypervisors built into the hardware of the system uh, that that can host you know uh, software-based hypervisors, you you have a, a design point where you can you can insert security and trust that you know that that other systems don't have. Um, and so, with that, and and through some clever design and leveraging, you know, a lot of the uh, a lot of investment that we've put into our, our our hardware around crypto performance, our you know, with with the uh, the Emperor Two, um, the crypto performance is you know four x better than than other platforms. Um, you know, by by leveraging that and the fact that we have an integrated system. You know, we were able to do things that that other systems that, that are you know that are much more piecemeal in nature and and uh, you know don't have that that ability to fully integrate. Well, we've been able to do things that that they just can't do, um, and that's why we have these you know the ability to do these secure containers that are really encapsulating of entire stacks and and protect and and encrypt and and create these these completely private uh, environments, um, and so. So that you know, it, 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 you know, we had we had good DNA as you point out to start off with, and yeah. and that really gave us the right lever to, to to build the the secure service container technology. And I remember reading the 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 release that came to me. Uh, it scales out now to something like two million containers. Is that right? Yeah, yeah. So so you know, we, you know, we we talked a bit about some of the the vertical and the or the the scale up and the scale out capabilities and. And to drive that point home, I mean, yeah, we decided to do an experiment where we wanted to, you know, pack as many Docker containers on a single box as we could. Um, and so we got up to 2 million and, and you know, we could have kept going, frankly, but we figured 2 million was, was probably a, a good place to stop. Um, <laughs> That's just showing off. <laughs> yeah. yeah. Well, I mean, yeah, realistically, I, I, I guess when, when people think about um, scaling that level, uh, there's a term that IBM uses called diagonal scale, and you know when you when you talk about two million containers, it's a number with six zeros behind it. Um, it. Again, it's like it's probably two or three orders of magnitude beyond. I mean, I remember seeing an experiment come out of the US. I forget which university, but they they played with I think it was up to ten thousand instances of a container in a public cloud, and there was cheering and clapping and high fives. Um, I, I can imagine sitting there just looking, thinking, but "Wait, dude, we just did two million." Um, when you think about diagonal scale, though, I'd love to get your thoughts around um, when, when you do that and you roll it out and you say you could have gone past 2 million. I mean, 
where does it go? Where does it end? Does it end? I mean, when you talk about diagonal scale and you keep bolting these big boxes together with this you know, capacity to scale on a linear basis at a cost-effective form, uh, what does diagonal scale mean when it comes to scaling something like Linux 1? Um, so, so diagonal scale is about scaling up, but it's also about scaling up and, and being able to sort of leverage the, the combined capability of, of scale up and scale out in a single system. And, and you know, that, that actually has some very neat and, and powerful value in the, you know, in the context of uh, microservice architectures. But, but, but to sort of just to, to, to complement the two million Docker containers for scaling out, I mean, we did another experiment where we decided to scale up. Uh, a single instance of MongoDB, and so we we got to set a single instance of Mongo uh, that that was 17 terabytes. Um, as so, it was it's 17 terabyte database running with 16 terabytes of real memory behind it, and and that kind of illustrates you know the opposite where or the opposite effect where instead of adding more um, you know more containers or more guests or more 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 transactions execution environments we or, or application servers what we really wanted to do was scale a single database so that you know we could you know we could we could grow that database as the demand on it grew and and so it, it really is quite you know quite novel and elegant to be able to take that combined growing of a single image you know for which is particularly valuable when you're doing data serving and you're doing data serving where you need a single point of truth, um, and then combine that with your ability to to sort of scale out all these applications that that tap into that database, and to do that again with a really efficient communication uh, protocol where you know things are essentially moving around in memory instead of over a, a, over a, a network, um, and and that 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 does create some some interesting and powerful capabilities for um, you know getting at your data effectively and then doing much more with that data once you get your hands on it because if you think about it the, the time you spend going over the wire to get your data is time that you cannot spend then uh, you know doing analytics or, or insights or gaining insights into that data because, you know, typically you're working with a fixed service level agreement that requires that you, you know, you, you respond within a fixed amount of time. If you spend a lot of that time just moving data, you're not spending good time. You're not, you're not investing that time effectively in understanding the data. And yeah. so, you know, we've had customers who have, who've, who've done, you know, who've, who've moved their, their uh, analytics workloads uh, from a you know from a, a an Intel cluster sitting besides their their Linux one environment onto the Linux one environment and seeing you know five x improvement in data latency, and and the ability to reinvest that time into insights and and analytics was to them you know uh, they, they, their little their language was you know this opens the aperture on innovation for us right um, so so yeah you know I think I think you know it's it is really novel and elegant. Um, what you can do with this type of topology. Well, I think the um, when you were talking about latency there, when we think about delays, I mean, if, if something's moving in and out of the chip at level one or two cache, we're talking about sort of half to one or two nanoseconds, which is hard to comprehend. When you get it to the point where it's moving around in memory, you're still talking about 
sort of you know, 100 nanoseconds or so from memory. Once you get it out of there and it's starting to move across the network, you're talking about 10,000 to 20,000 nanoseconds, which yeah. is starting to really get up there, right? Um, if you're moving a megabyte of data uh, sort of from memory to network, you're now talking about two to 500 nanoseconds. By the time you get it across the floor on the network, all of a sudden you're, you're out of the nanoseconds. You're, you're up to sort of, you know, I think even on SSD at the high end, you're still talking about a million nanoseconds. By the time you get to and from disk, it becomes 10 and 20 million. And then, you know, away it goes. And, and all of a sudden it goes from nanoseconds to, to seconds. And, you know, if you're doing a million transactions a second, that's a million seconds that adds up pretty fast. Um, and I don't think that many people sit there and do that math, but the transition from each of those layers and, and you end up with, you know, one to two to a hundred to a thousand, a million nanoseconds, they become seconds. Every second counts when you scale it up. What did the performance look like when you scaled up? I mean, when, when people think about databases and data moving around, it's hard to visualize it. Um, can you maybe just give some context to what it means to have 17 terabytes of data that's in a single image versus 17 servers with a terabyte each sitting on a network? I mean, um, there's some design... I mean, there's a million different design benefits, but, I mean, you can have your code sitting in one place, your data sitting in the same place... It can be moving in and out of the same piece of memory in the same CPU. Uh, what are the sorts of aha or eureka moments that you see people from your customer base uh, have when you sit there and you talk about this and all of a sudden they realize that they're not having to engineer the platform performance issues anymore. They can now worry about the code and the data. It, that's exactly it. When, when, when you take the, the challenges of having to manage the data and make it accessible to meet the needs of their, you know, their, their, their service level agreements, you take that out of the, the challenges that they have to deal with and you let, you're letting them really focus on their core competencies and, and, and in turn, you know, create a much richer experience ultimately for their end users and their, and their clients. And, and that's value for them. That's, that's a competitive advantage for them ultimately. Yeah. Um, when we talk about you know scaling up the uh, the, the, the Mongo da database to 17 terabytes, I mean we're talking about read-write performances of under four milliseconds, um, and and the minute you have to start you know partitioning that database, um, you're you're looking at you know an order of magnitude um, uh, of latency that you're adding in easily right to that to that story. So it makes a big difference. Um, uh, and and it, it and and that latency really does turn into business value because you're you're now able to spend more time understanding the data than than moving it. Um, you're also going to get a, a much more secure environment because you're no longer you don't have to worry about you know the data moving across a network and then the network has to be secured and so on and so on. Um, you get a more robust system because you're you know. The, the less moving parts, right? Less moving parts means essentially more better resilience, better availability, more robustness. So it, there are lots of lots of good reasons to want to scale up, um, and 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 sort of remove the need of having to engineer these systems to address all those concerns now in a manner that 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 then then taxes you and 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 doesn't allow you to really invest in your solution as much as you might have liked to. It, I always get these people say to me, oh, there's such a sticker shock when you talk about uh, some of this big iron. And then I like to get a piece of paper or a whiteboard marker and a whiteboard and start adding it. So, oh, hang on a second. Um, you know, if you think about it in transport and logistics, do you want 
a fleet of 42-foot containers moving around on the back of purpose-built trucks that you don't have to think about. So you put something in a package, you put it in a post office, it goes from one point to another, and they take care of the logistics and transport. Or do you want to buy a fleet of Uber cars and move little pizza boxes around yourself, um, if you'll pardon the pun? And when you start adding up all those design challenges and all the engineering challenges, to be able to just jump to a platform where you know the hardware's capable and you know the Linux platform is capable, uh, you know, and, and the scale at which you're talking is sometimes, it's, it, it's, I think it's beyond the comprehension of most developers and most engineering houses, particularly at, at enterprise level because they haven't been used to that scale. Um, or alternatively, do you invest in the right platform and spend your money up front on something that's already been engineered? to be appropriately scaled and speedy and sizable um, and just focus on the core business at hand. What's your business challenge? What are your enterprise challenges? What do you as an organisation need to do? And it's interesting I get these people sit there and go, oh, okay, I hadn't thought about it like that. Um, so when you don't have to worry about stacking up hundreds if not thousands of little machines and you don't have to worry about a network then that can move data fast, you don't have to worry about the security and the routers and the switches and the servers and the RAID arrays and the SAN and the NAS and cabling and God knows what, when it's all in one platform, and you can assume then that that's there. It's interesting to watch them sit there and go, oh, okay, well, I could spend lots of money doing all these little interesting pieces where there's lots of moving parts and lots of risk, or I can move to a platform that just assumes that that's baked in. And, and the change in thinking is interesting. I, are you seeing, um, not so much the Eureka moment, but are you seeing a shift where people now are realizing that they can get access to a platform where they thought, oh, we're a Linux shop, we can't go mainframe. Oh, okay, well, tick, that's a solved problem. We're a MongoDB shop or we're a Spark uh, analytics shop or we run a run HDFS and, and, and Hadoop. And all of a sudden you say, well, these things run native. So what's your next question? Oh, okay, so it runs natively on Linux, yes. And you run Linux natively, yes. Um, how, how does that conversation look when you're sitting in a room with someone who's putting all these blockers up and they said, well, that's no longer an issue, that's no longer an issue. So you start to delve into... What is the challenge? What kind of things come out of those conversations in your experience? Because, I mean, you're at the bleeding edge of it. You're at the coal face. Where do people lead to and, and quickly sort of get the point, well, if we take all those blockers away and those assumptions that we're all wrong, what do those conversations look like in those rooms when people start to focus on what their core business is and how they can leverage these strengths of the platform? Um, I think, you know, it, it's, it's, always, it's always nice to see that eureka moment where people go, wait, we can do this. Um, you know, I, I think there's always challenge in sort of overcoming some of the religion that that exists that you, you know you mentioned as well around fo you know the, this con the, this this attachment to legacy, um, and and it does take work to kind of get some people past that sometimes. Um, but but what's nice is when you can you know when you can talk to people who who don't have the burden of that religion or that 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 bias and and they see the value and their light their eyes light up and say what you can do that um that's, <laughs> i'd love to be that's a fly amazing. on the wall in those meetings <laughs> um i mean i i really love i i don't we, we've been partnering or, or working with um plastics bank i don't know if you you know um who they are but but they're basically developing a system to recuperate and um, plastic waste from the environment and and build an economy around around the um, around that. So they're they're using blockchain technology to build a a currency and and a whole a economy around you know recycling plastic. So right. so they're they're on one hand helping the environment but they're also sort of addressing poverty in a lot of these countries where there's a lot of plastic waste and 
And yeah. they, they have this very grand goal of going from from no no users to like a billion users in a year. Okay. A billion. And a billion. Wow. And and you you can imagine that they don't want to have to stop and re engineer their infrastructure, you know, as they grow exponentially, right? As they scale exponentially. And so so they picked Linux One, right, to 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 for for as a as the system to back this for them, right? Um, and that's that's because they can get the you know the trust and the security, but they also get the non-disruptive scale up that they need to ensure, right, that they can they can grow at the rate that they need to grow. So and yeah, I, think I, I love that. I love what they're doing. They're the they're the kinds of things that I think people you know. I try to avoid being an evangelist because people, as you said, you know, they start to get that religion experience. But I think, um, I think there's a lot of learning for people who have not necessarily realized there's other options. And so they have defaulted to the traditional spaces of, you know, I'm going to throw it up in the public cloud or whatever the case may be, or I'm going to try and create my own cluster of hypervisors. And yet when we, when that anecdote you were just sharing there around the plastic bank, I mean, I, th I think we're going to see, a, a Cambrian explosion, if you'll pardon the phrase, of new smart ideas realizing that they don't have to reinvent the wheel. They've just got to decide which kind of wheel they want. Because the, the scale of, 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 you know, when you think about the population of the planet and you, you take an idea and you apply to it, um, it's easy to get lost in the Western view that there's hundreds of millions of users. But when you do the math and there's 1.1 billion people in Africa, there's 1.3 billion people in India and 1.4 billion people in China, just those three continental regions or, or three nations, nation groups, if you group uh, Africa together, that's 3.8 billion people. So if you solve one problem for each of them, you've got to have, as you said before, like a billion new users. And, and the, the, the scale and, and, and design challenge that comes with that isn't something that many other platforms can cope. So it was interesting to see, hear you mention a billion new users, right? Because... I think that's the kind of thing when you know, we were talking about humanities earlier, when we think about music and, and art and health and uh, aviation and, and automotive and, and, and food and logistics and retail and transport, the day-to-day -day things that we count on, they scale very quickly now when, when the, the, the likes of an Uber comes along and someone just changes or transforms something, you have immediately got to scale up. You've got to get to a billion people quickly. I'm interested, actually, uh, uh, um, uh, and we're coming up into the hour, so I'd love to just throw some some uh, things at you. This one in particular, I, I love um, to sort of get some insights into um, what some of my guests uh, who have you know unique positions uh, of view in many ways, and, and you are certainly uh, well and truly in that position. Um, as to you know what's coming up over the over the next twelve to eighteen months and beyond. Um, given that you're one of a small group of people around the world who are inside the sort of you know the the, the workshops of these spaces, if you like, where where are we going to be in the next 12 to 18 months? I mean, what do you see coming over the horizon um, as far as not just Linux One and the IBM platform, but the, the big shifts? So, you know, as you enable the plastic bank type projects, I mean, you've got this unique view of what's possible. I mean, where do you personally think, uh, uh, above and beyond the whole IBM view of the world, where do you personally think things are going to go now that Linux One's available, but the, not just the Emperor 2, but the whole platform as a whole? With the the baked in sort of you know benefits of all of the fifty plus years of heritage and the assumed security and the speed and scale we're talking about here, uh, what's possible in the next year and a, year and a half or, or so? What, what does it look like in your mind? I, I think we're we're headed for um, a second wave of cloud enabled 
um, applications. And I think I think a lot of that's going to be based on what what I refer to as confidential cloud computing. I think with confidential cloud computing, where you know you can put something in the cloud and you can trust that it is completely secure and completely private, and you know even under federal warrant, um, the cloud provider could never get access to that data. They'd have to, you know, send the uh, send the FBI to the actual uh, tenant or, or cloud user. To get in, to get to, to get access to the data, you know, I think, I think that today is, you know, we're seeing we we're seeing we're seeing that with, you know, obviously with with the IBM cloud and with with now with Azure as well. Um, I think that is going to become the de facto standard for cloud computing, and with that, I think we're going to see a whole new wave and generation of of cloud enabled applications make their way to to cloud, and and I, I you know I think. You throw in the, you know, the uh, what we talked about with the the, data, the the rise of data breaches in the industry, um, but the pressures of being agile and 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 being able to 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 leverage cloud as a as a means for you know scaling up quickly and and going to market quickly. I think I think there's going to be a lot of pressure to make sure that those environments are, you know, confidential ultimately, and I think that's going to become the. The, the standard for how we do cloud computing very very quickly. It's it's a great insight actually. It, it, it's on par with um, a number of things that I've been uh, witnessing myself. And you know, there's uh, over the years we've had the likes of um, when we think about security in the frameworks and, and so forth that uh, and some of the governance around the world. We've you know, there's been the EU US Data Shield in place for some time now. Uh, I don't know that many people have even been familiar with that. But essentially, it's a, it's a framework and an agreement between the US or North America in general and, and Europe. And then there were modifications to that. So Switzerland and, and Denmark and Norway and others had their own sort of, you know, Swiss EU US data shield sort of adjustment to it to suit their purposes. Uh, but we've got some very big things coming through. I mean, you know, early next year, uh, I think it's is it March 28th from memory, uh, the European Union are going to actually put some teeth on something called the GDPR, the, the General Data Protection Regulation, uh, where a lot of the current platforms and incumbents, if you like, in the public-private hybrid cloud space are not going to be ready and capable of meeting the GDPR requirements. And the, you know, the, the risk of not being ready or not complying are uh, fairly dire. And, and you know, I like to turn those Y2K moments because when you get to early next year and, and this becomes law, I think it's, it's, it's like, you know, 20 plus million per incident or 4% of your, your, uh, of your revenue annually per incident. So if you have, you know, a million records vanish for whatever reason, uh, it's a million, you know, four, a million times 4% of your revenue. It's, it's such a Cambrian explosion of risk for organizations that they're not going to yeah. be able to afford to, go and put things in places where they can't just be guaranteed in black and white writing contractually that yes we can meet FIPS 140 yes we can meet GDPR yes we can and it, and it, you know I mean Russia shut down LinkedIn because they couldn't be guaranteed that, that Russian nationals data signing up to LinkedIn could stay in the country so they just shut the platform down uh, we've seen China a couple of days ago shut down the WhatsApp platform. Uh, now, there was a whole bunch of debate on why that happened, but the bulk of it to me seems to be because they were concerned about Chinese national data leaving the country. Uh, in Australia, for example, uh, businesses and particularly um, uh, public sector network organisations 
can't put data in the cloud of a certain type because we have data sovereignty challenges. Now, when you think about supply chain, when you think about somebody that's in the US supplying to Asia and India and Africa and Australia, and the data moving with that, GDPR hits you, the EU-US data shield comes into play, then there's the nuances across Switzerland and other nations have got their tweak on that framework. In Australia, you've got the Privacy Act that goes back to as early as 1918. Uh, we've now got a Notifiable Breaches Act that's just come out this year in, in January, where if there's any incident that looks like a breach, you have to notify the public so they can make informed decisions about it. Um, and I think we get the point now where all the things you're talking about there that, you know, the, over the horizon, the horizon's probably not quite that far away where there's some specific Y2K moments coming up that are going to impact us. There's one, I think it's February next year, the FAA in, in the US has deemed that every aeroplane needs to be at the same level, the BIOS uh, uh, of, of, I think it was the Airbus, uh, sorry, the um, Boeing 787 with data capture and logging. Um, so these are big things that are coming about where organizations can't afford the time and effort to build it themselves. They're going to have to be able to just go and buy it off the shelf, if you like. Uh, so I think you're absolutely smack on the point there that over the horizon, this big shift to the assumption of security, the assumption of protection, the assumption of scale is going to be in need. Um, are there examples that you, you've already seen people adopt this already before we wrap up and get to the top of the hour? Are there any anecdote examples of people, and you've mentioned the, the, the plastic bank, uh, do you see organizations already coming to you with this sort of clarity, knowing these things are coming through, saying, hey, look, we realize that we can't get this in other platforms. It appears you've got the only platform or the leading platform on it. Um, are there any, without maybe even naming the brands, that you could sort of share some insight into that, that folk listening could look at it and say, well, that applies to me. I think that I think that's something I need to do. Well, I, th I think we've, you know, with the, with the IBM blockchain a solution in the IBM cloud, which is hosted on Linux One and, and leverages that secure service container technology to ensure privacy and and protection. You know, I think we've seen that 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 capability, that guarantee, has you know has really helped differentiate the IBM blockchain solution. And um, you know, we've seen a, a really good story and, and a lot of. of good buy-in and, and onboarding of new customers, and I think a lot of them have been in the press. Um, so, you know, I think that's a great proof point for, you know, there's a need for this, and, and people value it. And if we can extend that capability into a broader set of use cases, and, and people are asking, people are already asking, you know, can you do more than just blockchain uh, with these secure service containers? Can we put a database in there, for instance? Can we put our transaction processing environment in there? Um, so, so yeah, we, we've seen, we've definitely seen a lot of interest, and and like you said, I think there's a lot of market pressures that are driving that that need. So, yeah, I think I think it's inevitable. Well, I think um, I think it's an exciting time for us because um, we've we're at the point now where uh, we've got things that are impacting us that that we've either a got to stop happening because people have made bad decisions on design or they've had time pressures or cost challenges where they just haven't been able to invest in the security. I think we're in an exciting time now where, um, for me, I think we've got this, this situation now where you're enabling this whole next generation of applications and next generation of, of service level, where, as you said before, you know, um, having a, a platform put into the cloud, you know, whether it's on-premise cloud or hybrid public cloud, um, where we can assume that things are secure. And as you said, you know, without somebody with a gun rocking up your front door and a warrant and demanding you hand over the password of your keys, um, providers can put their hands. You know, we saw the thing with with Apple and the iPhone and not right. wanting you know, to decrypt data. Uh, I, I don't think 
it's the provider's role to do that. I think we need to put control of the data back into individuals' hands, both as consumers as well as service providers offering the, the actual platform. So I think you're absolutely right. There's a whole new generation of, of thinking and design around next-generation apps, next-generation security, and also speed um, tied to market. So, look, thank you so much for your time, Marcel. Um, so, Marcel Mitran, you're the CTO of IBM Linux One. You're a distinguished in uh, engineer at IBM Systems. Um, you've had, you know, as we saw, 20 years of, of developing both hardware and software, so you've got a very unique view of the world. Uh, 16 exciting years at IBM, and, and particularly focused of late on uh, Linux and Linux One. And the, uh, the recent announcement of Emperor 2, thanks for sharing that with us. Um, some amazing insights there. Thank you so much for making your time available. It's been an absolute pleasure talking to you. Well, thanks for having me, Des. It's been fun. And uh, hopefully we'll have you back on again soon. So, folks, we're going to wrap up there. Um, some amazing insights, and I'm sure you've enjoyed them all, talking around security and speed and scalability of uh, Emperor 2 and, uh, and the Linux on platform. And with that, we're going to wrap up, and thanks for listening. Cheers. It's Des here, and Marcel, thanks so much for your time. Thanks. <laughs>